Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everyone left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with bereavement professionals. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Janet Christofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hey listeners, so this episode is a little unique for a few reasons. This is the first Grief Out Loud on the road. Usually we're recording in my DIY studio, which is also known as my office, surrounded by fleece blankets and the hope that the garbage truck doesn't show up mid-recording. Today, though, I packed up the equipment and a wool blanket and headed to my friend Iden's house, where there are a lot of super cute cats and dogs, including Sebastian, who's sitting on Iden's lap right now. And because of that, you might hear some background noise like cars going by or a dishwasher and hopefully, if we're lucky, Sebastian purring. In late December of 2014, Aiden was a young professional moving up in her career as an engineer. In just the last year and a half, she'd gotten married, started a new job, and she and her wife, Michelle, were busy doing what they loved, going to live music, doting on their five animals, and spending time with friends and family. Aiden was also having some strange symptoms like fatigue and nausea and some vision changes each of which could be individually dismissed because who wouldn't be tired and a little queasy when starting a brand new job. But then on January 13th of 2015, everything changed. Aiden went for an MRI, and before she even made it back to her car, the doctor called and asked her to return to the hospital. They had seen a mass in her brain. She was admitted immediately and underwent the first of three surgeries. A diagnosis was soon made. It was a grade 3 astrocytoma that was wrapped around her brainstem. The tumor was largely inoperable and extremely rare, mostly because astrocytomas tend to be only seen in children, and it's very rare for one to be in a young adult or an adult. And because of that, there's not a lot of research around what's the best course of treatment. So faced with needing to decide on a course of treatment, Aiden and her wife, Michelle, consulted with specialists across the country, and they landed on doing a proton radiation treatment at the Seattle Cancer Center in Washington State, which is about three to four hours away from their home in Portland. So they uprooted their life for six weeks, scored an Airbnb, which took their dogs, an absolute must, and set up shop for almost two months. Aiden underwent intensive radiation and chemotherapy in the hopes of shrinking or at least stabilizing the tumor around her brainstem. That was three and a half years ago. And since then, Aiden has had to make intensely difficult choices. Choices around additional treatment and choices around the side effects of those treatments. Choices around adapting to what she can and can't do in this new world of living with an illness. She's also a young adult who loves her job and wanted to figure out how to best live with this diagnosis, a diagnosis that has no cure and no clearly defined course. She and Michelle faced impossible questions of where to invest their time and their energy and their financial resources, given this reality of knowing that Aiden's life might be shortened. While most of her peers were deciding on 401k plans, vacation destinations, and whether to redo their kitchens, Aiden was compelled to face the question of how do you orient to this harsh reality of mortality while also still being present with the business of living? 
So Aiden, thanks so much for letting me come into your house and be on the episode today. Thanks for being here. I appreciate the conversation. You know, and you and I've talked a lot uh, leading up to this episode and recognizing that so many of our guests on Grief Out Loud are people who have had someone in their life who has died and they're talking about the grief process after. And you're our first guest who's living with your own diagnosis. I'd love to start with, can you just talk a little of how do you talk about this? Like, how, what, do you, what words do you use? How do you describe what you're going through? I say that I am living with cancer, and that's often something that is hard for people to understand. Um, like, I thought when I was diagnosed that I had cancer, okay, I would get treatment, and then I would be better. And the idea that I'm living with cancer, that I went through 20 months of treatment, and it's still there, there's nothing they have right now to make it go away. One of my oncologists talked about it as a chronic illness, but that doesn't seem sit quite right with me. I, I say that I'm living with cancer because it feels like more than an illness. And so it needs to have its own unique name. Yeah. What's your take on the languaging around fighting cancer, living with cancer, battling cancer? I am not a huge fan of the the fight, survivor, battle language. I know that I am I am fighting it, but I guess I say living with it seems more appropriate to me. Yeah, which is definitely not prescriptive, listeners. There are many folks for whom the the fighting or the battling is very appropriate for them and works for them, but also just to point out that's not what's true for everyone. Yeah, a lot of people really get into the survivor thing, and they have clothing that says survivor, and they they are very vocal about that as their identity. Some people say that the day that you're diagnosed with cancer, you are a cancer survivor every day moving forward. Some people say that once you're in remission, then you're a survivor, but it's that's not really a word that resonates with me. Mm-hmm. And how important it is to come to a definition that fits well with what you experience. As we talked about what questions to do in this podcast, I realized the question I most wanted to ask you was, what are the questions you wish people would ask you as a young adult who's living with cancer? I know that everyone's different. For me, I, I want people to ask specific questions. People in our society say, how are you? It's just kind of a a greeting. It's not anything meaningful. And it's hard for me to tell if somebody doesn't ask me a specific question, if they actually want to know. And I, I like talking about how I'm doing. And so a specific question may be about what your latest scan showed or yeah. how you're physically feeling. How is your health? How are you feeling today? And also at the same time, did you go to a concert this week or you know, I'm also a person and not just a cancer patient. Also just kind of treating me like I used to be treated. So don't avoid asking about it, but then also don't just ask about that. It's usually avoided. People don't want to talk about it because it's uncomfortable. When I showed up back at work and my chemo didn't make my hair fall out, so I had hair and I was back at work and this person assumed that I was better asked me about what I was going to do now that I was in remission. And I'm not going to lie. I said, I'm never going to be in remission. And that person has trouble looking me in the eye now. Mm. And that was two years ago. 
People love a good cancer story when the person is better, but I'm in a situation where they don't think I will ever get better. And so stable is the best that is the best news we can get. And what was that process like of settling into the reality that stable is the hope in this moment? It took a really long time for me to be okay with that. At first, I I heard that I had cancer and I wasn't all that concerned. I thought, well, there's chemo and then I'll get better. And I found out that that wasn't the case. I mean, I'm probably still dealing with that. But then there was 20 months of treatment. The chemo that I took was the only chemo that's available for brain cancer. It works best on grade four and mine is grade three. So it wasn't that effective. And I was going through 20 months of that and being miserable when it wasn't really making a difference. And when I asked my oncologist, he said, oh yeah, it doesn't really work that well on your type of cancer. So why am I doing this and going through all these symptoms? I mean, I, I did it because that was the only option, but it would have been nice to know that. The whole experience has been a lot of moments like that. Something happens and I And I think, I wish I would have known that, or I wish somebody would have explained this to me. You know, it's it's easy to fall through the cracks. And hard to know what questions to ask if you don't know what questions to ask. Exactly, yeah. I didn't know anything about cancer, anything about chemo. I didn't know anybody personally who had cancer. You know, I I thought that chemo was chemo was chemo, but I didn't know there were hundreds of chemo drugs that they can be so targeted and specific, but then frustrating to realize there is no targeted and specific formulation for your type of cancer. Yeah. How has that looked for the people in your life? You're married, you have a mom and a dad, you have a brother in terms of that coming to that realization of this is going to be a living with and a hoping for stable, not for hoping for cure or remission. I can't speak for how it impacts them, but it, I, I have definitely thought about it, and it it weighs on me. You know, I, I wish that all the attention didn't have to be focused on me through the last three years, that most of the attention is always on Aiden. How's Aiden? How's, how's she feeling? How's she doing? But there are all these other people in my life that are impacted as well, and they don't necessarily get the attention or the questions. It reminds me of, um, we've talked to quite a few people who... Maybe they were an adult and their sibling died and all the focus is always on how are your parents doing? How are your parents doing? And people forget to ask, how's Mm -hmm. the sibling doing? Yeah. Along the same lines of the questions that you wish people would ask and and wishing in your particular situation that people would ask specific questions about how you're doing and what else you're doing in your life. What are the questions you wish people would not ask? The biggest question that really irritates me is strangers asking me about my cane. I walk with a cane because I have trouble with my balance. I'm more than happy to explain that to somebody who I know or I'm having a conversation with, but predominantly men, say in an elevator or something, uh, they'll say, oh, do you have a bum knee? (laughs) I can't tell you how many people have asked me that. And like I said, I'm not going to lie. I say, I have brain cancer. And then they get super uncomfortable and they look the other way and they, they usually say that they're very sorry and it's just very uncomfortable. And brings up another thought around how stereotypically there's an image of what, what someone who's living with cancer looks like. 
I bet they probably don't have hair from chemotherapy. They might be wearing a headscarf. Maybe they're in a wheelchair. And, and then there's folks who are living with cancer and other illnesses that from the outside look totally healthy. How does that play out in your day-to-day life? It goes back and forth. Sometimes I'm happy that I can kind of hide in that way. Sometimes I wish that I, people would be able to tell. For instance, I'm, I take the bus to work and I get in and it's full and I need a seat because if I don't have one, I might fall over <laughs> because I fall over on a surface that is not moving. I get in and everyone's looking at their phones and nobody even thinks to look up and, and I have to ask. And, and sometimes I get not dirty looks, but like, I look healthy. Why do I need a seat? And that's, that's hard. And sometimes I wish that people would know that I'm not just a normal 33-year-old. But I think that extends to the whole population. You never know what anybody is going through. That's something we hear so much from folks who are grieving, that sometimes they wish they could wear a name badge that said, hello, I'm grieving. Get off my case or give me a little bit of extra care and concern. So one of the things around your particular situation of having been 30 when you received this diagnosis and going through treatment and realizing this is something that is going to be with you. Like you're not going to have a cure. You're not going to go into full remission. How does, how has that changed your relationship to money and the things we need to live our lives? That is an interesting question and something that I still am trying to figure out. When I was diagnosed, I went on to disability and I was lucky enough to have a long-term disability policy through my work and that replaces 60% of my prior earnings. So that was able to keep us afloat during my treatment when I wasn't able to work. And now I'm working about 15 hours a week, and I'm able to earn 39% of my former income to make a total of 99% of my former income. I don't know why it's not 100%, (laughs) but... So I can earn almost what I used to earn. There's uh, no cost of living increase for me ever. So unless I am able to work full time again, I am capped at this. The rate you were making when you went on three years ago. Yep. So that is challenging and and frustrating. That's hard to deal with. But then at, at the same time, I have this, I have some retirement savings. And I found out that since I'm, I'm on social security disability, they have, deemed me permanently disabled. Because of that, I am allowed to take out money from retirement accounts with no penalties. So that's a possible source of, you know, I want to go to Japan someday. If I didn't have this diagnosis, maybe that would happen in 30 years, but Mm. I might not be here in 30 years. So there's this question of how do you spend your money and resources? And the same goes with time. How do I want to spend my time? What do I want to be doing? Some days I think I have it figured out and other days I just have no clue whether I want to spend it all today or or try and save it for the future because I don't know what the future holds. I imagine there's so many people who think like if I ever got X, Y, and Z diagnosis, I would spend it all and use up all my money before. But if you don't have any kind of definitive course where... Mm -hmm. It could be 20, 30 years. It could be five years. How do you, yeah, how do you make those decisions? And I, I think my wife and I have come to a, a fairly decent balance between 
we both work part-time and we spend a lot of time going to concerts and traveling and camping and we do more fun things than we would do if we were working full-time but we're not going all out you know European vacation style (laughs) (laughs) you've had to have some sort of middle ground yeah it's a middle ground and the longer I am away from my treatment and I've been stable for a year and a half post-treatment now I get to relax a little bit I'm feeling a little bit more optimistic and a little bit more like saving money as opposed to spending money. But, you know, things, things change every day. In a way, you're like confronted with your own mortality on a very regular basis, much more so than pretty much most people, but especially people who are in their 30s. It's not something that's on a lot of people's like day-to-day radar. Who do you talk to about that, if anyone, and, and what are those conversations like? I don't talk about it a lot. It's not something that I like to think about. It does enter my mind, obviously. Some people say, well, you could get hit by a bus tomorrow. Well, yes, anybody could get hit by a bus, but I have an illness which will kill me. It's hard to think about it. I don't talk about it often with loved ones around me. I feel concern about causing others pain. Has there been a shift in in friends or family going to you for support about other stuff? Like, hey, I I have this challenge. What do you think I should do? Have people moved away from seeking advice and counsel from you? I can't say for sure definitively, but I'm guessing that has happened to some degree. Of the, the friends that are still around, there are a number of friends that just sort of disappeared. And I think a lot of it is growing up and interest change and that sort of thing. But there are several people that just kind of disappeared after my diagnosis. And I I don't know if it was too painful or don't want to be confronted with this uncomfortable thing that is cancer. So the same thing happens for folks who are living with cancer as for folks who are grieving a death as well, because that's something we hear all the time, that Mm -hmm. people just fade away. A lot of people showed up that we didn't expect, but a lot of people that we expected to show up disappeared. Where are the places you have found connection and community? A lot of it is through, I've, I've gone to a young adult support group. I'm not currently going But all through treatment I was going, it was once a month. And it was all types of cancer, but it was people of my age group. So they're dealing with the same issues. Um, Starting a family, careers, trying to figure out what to do with your life as a young person with this added layer of complexity. So being able to talk to people my own age has been the most helpful, who have cancer also. And speaking of that, you you went kayaking and you've gone on these wild adventures with a group called First Descents. First Descents. Tell tell me a little bit more about them. They are an incredible nonprofit. I believe they're based in Denver and they provide free one week long outdoor adventures to young adults impacted by cancer. And all you have to do is get yourself there. In my case, I went to Hood River and you're put with people from in that age range from all over the country who either have or have had cancer. It was a major reset for me. And I had been living this sick person life for over a year 
and I got to go and just start over and there was all this support for learning how to whitewater kayak. The first day they flip you upside down in your kayak and that's not something (laughs) I ever thought I would do but here I was in the middle of cancer treatment and doing that and the connections that I made with those 13 other young adults. We've since had one week-long reunion last summer in Maine and then we have another reunion in a few weeks in Montana. Being with people who really, truly get it. Yeah. And then being able to do something that, from what you've described, seems like connects you to your body in a different way. It gives you a little bit of faith back in this body that has been potentially failing you or has betrayed you in some way. And listeners, I'll link to uh, the First Descent program uh, in the show notes. So you'll be able to connect with them if you know anybody who might be a good fit for that program. This is always a strange question to ask somebody, but I'm going to ask it anyways. What suggestions do you have for other folks maybe in your situation or people who are in their support team? And it's a weird question because it's such an individual answer. So I hate to be like, hey, I just got the answer for everyone out there who's a young adult who has cancer, but recognizing just from your knowing and knowledge. It is very individual, but I think there are some broad things that I can say. One is to just show up and you don't necessarily have to talk about cancer for six hours with me, but just to show up and and maybe we go for a walk or go get a cup of tea. And maybe we don't talk about cancer at all, but just to be present. I know that it's uncomfortable and it's hard to think about and face, but disappearing is not the most helpful thing. So showing up and letting in that discomfort and facing it. Another thing that is helpful is a specific offer of help. I had a lot of people say, just let me know if you need something. I'm not very good at asking for help, and so that was not very helpful. It would be more helpful to say, can I drop off dinner on Thursday? Or I'm picking up groceries, can I get you anything? Those sorts of things. From what you were saying earlier, it sounds like something that doesn't get talked about a lot is making sure there's folks who are checking in with your people and remembering that you're surrounded by your wife and your family who care about you and her putting so much time and energy into supporting you. And it seems like it would be really reassuring to know those folks were being supported as well. Absolutely. One more thing that is not helpful is suggesting treatment options. I've had a lot of people say, oh, you should try this diet. Or have you heard about, it's one thing to say, have you heard about X? It's another to say, you should try X. Mm. I think it's fine to say, have you heard about X? But to tell somebody that they should be doing something is very insensitive. It's hard. I have a whole team of medical professionals that are advising me on what I should and should not be doing. How do you usually respond if someone says, hey, you should totally drink these green juices and read this book and meditate 20 minutes every night? I think I should clarify that question too of what do you say? And then like, maybe what are the things you wish you could say that don't actually come out of your mouth? I wish I could say that I have a team that I trust and, and I appreciate the thought, but I'm not going to do this or that, or maybe I'll try that. Can you tell me more about that? Oftentimes I will say thank you 
and internally I'm offended and I'm hurt that they would pass this judgment on me that I should be doing something that I'm not. Yeah. So it's such a great reminder for all of us who are going to be in a place of supporting anyone, anytime for any challenging thing they're going through of what, what probably originates in our heart as a desire to be supportive can come across as really disconnecting and that there's other ways to reach out to people and maybe even offer some ideas, but to do it in a way that is much different. The other thing I'm wondering about is I feel like there's not a lot of awareness for myself included of how much time and energy it takes to live day-to-day life when you're living with cancer. That is an interesting one. I sleep a lot more than I used to and I have I struggle with fatigue. Most people probably don't understand what it is really like when I say I can't do that. I'm too tired or I'm not feeling well today. The fatigue that I feel is a is pain in my body. It's debilitating. It's not just oh I stayed up too late. I'm tired. It's it's a whole different animal. And it's gotten a lot better since I stopped treatment, but it's still, because of the location of my tumor, I'm going to be dealing with fatigue for the rest of my life. And it's hard not to be able to do the things that I used to be able to do. And it's hard to pace myself. I start feeling a little bit better, and then I go overboard and do too many fun things. And then I am on the couch the next day, and I can't really do anything at all. Yeah, so what might be somebody's hitting snooze button a couple times in the morning after having a fun night out at live music looks very different for you. I used to be able to survive. I didn't feel great, but I could survive if I had six hours of sleep. And now if I get less than nine or ten, it's hard for me to function. Makes me circle back to that idea of what can people do to be helpful and the idea of offering specific things, asking to just hang out, and also understanding that somebody might need to cancel at the last minute and might not be able to fulfill those plans. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for having this conversation with me, for inviting me into your house uh, and to just sharing so openly with our listeners. Thank you for your thoughtful questions. And listeners, I'm really sorry to say Sebastian exited the room, so we didn't get a recording of his purring. He's just looking at us a little bored from the other room right now. And for those of you who are perhaps joining us for the first time today as a listener of Grief Out Loud, you can find all of our past episodes on our website, just D-O-U-G-Y dot or you can find us in all of the familiar locations for podcasts. It might be Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, anywhere else you get your podcasts. If you have an idea out there for an episode or a topic you want to hear us talk about, please reach out. You can contact us at help at Dougie.org. Thanks for listening. Hope you'll join us again next time. Thanks for listening.